Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. Super excited to have you guys here. Uh, we got Tom. Thank you for coming. Vin's in the house. Wiko, Jennifer, Akshay, Koshal, the classification guru. Suzanne Walsh is in the house. Man, super, super excited. Super happy to have you guys here, man. Thank you for spending part of your Friday afternoon here with me. Uh, if you got a glass of beer, then cheers to you guys. If not, then it's just, just me sipping on it. Harper, can I just please add that it's over the top awesome today that the guru is in the house. It really is. It really is. It does make the Friday that much better. Guys, Suzanne, I'm still working. It's like half past 10 at night on a Friday and I'm still working and I have to get something out the door tonight. I'm so tired. And you just moved recently, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but what's your point, Susan? (laughs) (laughs) I need alcohol. (laughs) Well, you're in England, isn't it? Everywhere? Yeah. I'm Scottish. Anytime is alcohol time. That's true. That's, that's, That's a good culture. I like that. Uh, Joe Reese in the house, man. Joe, good to see you again. Tours here. Uh, Jacqueline's entering into the room. Assure then, man, it's so, so awesome to have you guys here. So hopefully you guys got a chance to check out the episode from this week, which was released today. It was our good friend, George Coquillo. Um, we talked about project management for data science. Um, it was a really great conversation. So I got a chance to talk. I think we talked back in like September or October something around then. So this is before he was uh, like LinkedIn top voice. So I got to him while he's still on the ground floor, uh, but it was awesome to to speak to him. So hopefully you guys got a chance to check out that episode. Um, but yeah, man, welcome everybody. Super happy to have you guys here. Uh, so let's open the floor up for some questions. Anybody have any questions? If you do, go ahead and unmute yourself. And then while that person is asking a question, please just hold your place in line by typing out, I have a question right there into the chat. Or you can use the frequently forgotten method of using the, what I just did, and it puts you in the right order, left or right. Okay. I did not know that. That's good. You can do that as well. So, uh, well, since Vin's here, man, I want to holler at Vin. Vin, how you doing, man? Uh, it's Friday. You can tell it's late because I couldn't get that unmute done. <laughs> yeah. that, that was a that was a good what five seconds of me trying to click unmute. <laughs> well, I'm glad you figured it out, man. Super, super happy to have you here. Would, do you, did you do a talk earlier this morning, or would, did I get that timing wrong? Yeah, I did one with uh, Lexi earlier this morning. Well, afternoon, evening, his time. We went over. Uh, we had a bunch of troopers that hung out. He did an, a, a ended up being about five and a half hours long. Wow. And had a bunch of other speakers. I was the anchor man and I was just grateful there was anybody left after, you know, four hours of conference. And we ended up talking a lot about some new roles, about machine learning product manager role, about the researcher role that's coming out, about bringing engineering into architecture and really bringing out a machine learning architect to handle larger sort of implications across the enterprise. It was a great conversation. Yeah, man, I, I saw you talking about on LinkedIn, at least the the different topics you're going to discover, or rather new different roles that that you see coming up in the data science space. And man, I'm so, like, so bummed that I missed that. Hopefully it's on YouTube at some point so we can check yep. it out. But if, if you wouldn't mind just, just talking a little bit about that, getting this conversation warmed up here, well, and while it's still kind of fresh on your mind. So... The, the topic of, of your talk was essentially about how data science is now going to see a 
influx of new roles and, and new titles. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Moving more towards, um, more towards the applied side. And I say that not just product focused, but towards practical applications of research and towards creating a strategy that can look two to three to four, you know, if we're lucky four years out, trying to figure out what's next, what's going to come out. Now you've got all of these roles that you're going to need to introduce and all of these capabilities that you're going to need to introduce in order to productize and monetize machine learning. And so we talked about the machine learning product manager, machine learning architect, two types of researchers where you have the hardcore science machine learning researcher, and you also have the applied researcher. And I think eventually you're going to see an entire quality assurance group and role get defined out that will sort of take this amorphous thing that we have right now is model quality and turn it into more of a process and a practice to get what's in production working the way we need it to and to stabilize long term so that you can put a model in production and not continually have to mess with it, not continually have to sort of limp it along in order to, to bring back some value. And so we talked about a bunch of different roles and it was a good conversation just around what is it gonna take aside from ML engineers and aside from data engineers and data scientists, what are the other processes? What else is it gonna take going forward to start making money with machine learning and start you know, companies on that road to maturity? So what is it going to take to, to start to start monetizing it? What do you think? Well, to tell you, I'm going to have to first ask you to write an enormous check. It's <laughs> going to be a big check. <laughs> it, it's really, you've got to get somebody at the top bought in. That's step one. There has to be somebody in the C-suite or your board of directors who's pressuring and saying, look, this really has to get done. I understand we have a data science team. I understand we have models in production. I understand we have... Kubernetes. I, I get it. But we need something else. We need to be more rigorous about this. I'm, I'm tired of spending a crazy amount of money and not seeing what, you know, the sales guy promised me or what the, the people from marketing promised me. It, it's, it's just not happening. When does it start? I think that's what it's going to take to get rolling is somebody at the top who sponsored signed in. And in a lot of cases, I think we're going to start seeing data scientists become CEOs, become CTOs. And as we see the field sort of migrate into the C-suite as we're getting older, uh, we're getting older. Um, <laughs> I think you're going to see more CEOs that have a data science background. And so they'll be the ones driving it. I love it, man. I think that's an excellent, like, direction that the field is heading in. So you mentioned a couple of roles in there that I found were very interesting and there weren't really roles that I'd actually heard of before. So this concept of a ML architect, what, what is that? What role would that person play in an organization? Very similar to a cloud architect, you know, in that you've got this massive infrastructure and for companies that are doing machine learning, they might be halfway through trying to figure cloud out trying to figure out if there is cloud. Some are migrating back and doing a hybrid. So you have sort of this in transition, the, the whole concept of digital transformation that's, you know, uh, companies are in various states of. And so you have an ML architect now, their role is to understand this whole landscape. Because if you're an ML engineer, you're really kind of, you, you can control some things. And a lot of what you're doing is one-off. It's hard to get something on a product roadmap 
if you're just an ML engineer and you don't really have that involvement at a higher level, at an architectural level, at an organizational level to be able to look at other groups and say, this is what you're using. That's awesome, but we're not going to use that anymore. Why? This is why. And not only are we not going to use that, we might actually be migrating you to use what we're using. And it's that level of embeddedness, I guess, in the technical organization that the, the machine learning architect is bringing because one product one project, it's really hard to say we're going to build this massive platform that's going to support doing machine learning and data science faster, iterating more quickly, supporting more complex models into production, handling all this massive data that we're starting to figure out how to use, not just gather randomly. Having someone who can say, okay, now I've got four projects on this roadmap that I'm looking at. And what we need to do is make some architectural changes, make some changes to the platform. We're going to buy this piece. We're going to develop that piece. And it's going to be cost effective because, and so you have somebody who's more of an enterprise view rather than I'm stuck in the machine learning team. And do you think somebody like, you know, for example, like, like me, who is a, a data scientist, statistician, kind of like a very much so in, in the research uh, part of everything, would it be beneficial for like people like me to pick up on these uh, architectural skills? And if so, like, how would we go about doing that? Because when I hear like of, of any architecture, software architecture, data architect, like to me, it's just like this massive, massive thing. And it's really, really daunting. Um, but I do want to understand it so I can have a, I guess, just more meaningful and productive conversation with whatever solution architects that I'm working with, what should we go to, well, where should we go to kind of pick up on these skills? I think if you're in research already, if you're already towards and focused on research, don't, don't pivot if you love research because research is so valuable. The, the, the most, I guess, profitable side of the business is going to be the science side, the research side, where we don't just talk about innovation. We're actually researching and creating something. It's no longer this buzzword, innovation. We innovate. We create innovative products. No, we actually do now. And machine learning researchers can actually build new things, novel concepts, novel products, enable products that weren't able, to, that didn't exist before. So if you're already a researcher, I'm not trying to talk you into becoming overly technical. Stay a researcher. You guys are awesome. Don't, don't, don't come over to the dark side or the light side. I mean, I don't know which way you want to think about it, but don't, don't pivot if you're already on a great career trajectory. Yeah. But if you love the technical side and if you love the R&D side, yeah, definitely. Software engineering best practices are a great place to start because that's what's starting to come in. Architecture, solutions, architecture, cloud architecture, all of that is sort of slapping together. And that's really the underpinning of machine learning architecture. And then bring your background in data science to that. Bring your understanding of the problems in the organization and the stuff that you've done that's just worthless and horrible and soul-sucking that you want to automate. Or the things you couldn't get anyone to say yes to because it took way too much people time and now you can automate it and build a platform that'll help support or develop so definitely if you're a researcher no stay stay in a great place yeah but if you're a software developer or if you're already in the architecture space or on your way into the architecture space this is a good pivot yeah i've got this you know this this initiative i'm undertaking at work which is essentially to create a data strategy you know, digital transformation for this this massive organization that's been around for 70 plus years, but doesn't make use of analytics very much at all. So they got me and a 
a software engineer who's just been recently promoted up to like a data architect type of role, uh, working together, putting our heads together to create a data strategy. And me being the classic academic, what do I do? I go buy a book called Modern Data Strategy and then try to figure out how I can make this happen. Um, and it's been challenging to say the least, like just, just thinking about it. And one of the objectives I have, you know, I was talking to my executive level stakeholder and he said, first iteration right now, end of March, all I want you to do is come up with a plan for how you're going to come up with a plan. And I was like, what? That's like making my head scratch. How do I come up with a plan about how I'm going to come up with a plan? Uh, but, you know, now I decided just to, to put an OKR kind of framework around it, objectives and key results. And I think that will help break this nebulous task down into more concrete, actionable steps. I'm really, really excited about it. Um, but yeah, um, so I'm curious. So to, to everybody here who's got a software engineering background, I know Vin does, I know Joe does, um, and, you know, n- number of people here, like, like I'm, 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 38 years old. I'm pretty late in life. Like, I don't think I'll ever become a great software engineer. I I think it's just going to require too much focus time for me to do that. But is it too late for me to start thinking like a great software engineer? And this is something I've been wrestling with. Like, you know, I I may not be able to put in enough focus time to get hands-on dirty with all the tools, but can I understand how the greatest software engineers think, how the greatest software developers think? Can I get inside their heads and understand them so then I can work with them more effectively? Um, And kind of my naive way of doing that is, you know, I'm reading uh, Pragmatic Programmer again for like the third time, reading it and listening to it on audiobook. And... Like I'm, I'm just really curious. Like, do you guys think that you have to be a great software engineer in order to think like one? Um, can I can I just yeah. chime in here? Harpreet? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, like for me in my current job, uh, I'm learning a lot by being a part of an integrated team. So there's me, the software engineer, and a and the product owner. And the product owner does a lot of the you know business figuring out the impact to the to the business and talking to the executives kind of role. The software engineer is doing a lot of, as you would imagine, kind of the architecture and how it's, how it's all going to figure it out. And I'm talking about once the data gets here, how are we going to build models around it? So I don't try to be a great software engineer. In fact, you know, probably my software engineering skills have gone down since I joined this team because now that I have this software engineering counterpart with an entire team beneath them, like I don't really have to deal with software engineering as much anymore. I just have to specify the kind of things that we need and we'll have a lot of conversations. So he kind of understands my world and then I understand a little bit his world. Um, And then the same thing with the business side too, in terms of executive sponsorship and stuff. So that's been my approach so far. Um, I guess if my circumstances were different and then I somehow there wasn't this person, then yeah, maybe I would try to learn something, but in the end you can't do it all. Right. So I'm happy where I am now where I focus on, on my end. Yeah, I like that that sentiment. You don't have to to know how to do it all, Joe. I'd, I'd love to hear. It, it, Joe, your uh, audio is coming in very, very, very um, low. I'm not sure if your mic is connected or not. Okay, yeah, we'll give you a second to. Uh, uh, how about if from anybody? Oh, Joe, is that you again? All right, so. How about anybody else here who is coming from a software engineering background? Do you think it's possible to think like a great software engineer without necessarily being one? Crickets. Well, no worries. Uh, Joe, if, if you've got your microphone set up, yeah, no worries. 
All right, cool. Hey, so if you guys have questions, by all means, uh, go ahead and just dump them in the chat. If you want to send me like a private message so that it sticks out a little bit more on my end, that'd be great. Um, just noticed that our guest of honor is in the house, Greg Coquillo. If you guys did not tune into the episode that was just released today, make sure you do. It was uh, probably, I, I would like to think that it was your best interview ever, but you know, I'm just being, I was being biased. <laughs> All right, so I don't see any questions in the chat. You hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you perfectly. Loud and clear. Okay, good. I'm not sure what happened with my other mic. So, um, yeah, what I was saying on the uh, software engineering note, I think that, I mean, I think to echo what Brandon said, like you can't be great at everything, um, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't borrow ideas, right, and start building mental models of what constitutes proper software engineering. Um, I only think that, that helps. Um, but I mean, does that mean you're, you're, you'll ever be a 10x developer? I mean, probably not. But the, I guess the question is, would you want to be? <laughs> so, because at the same time, it's like, you know, you on the spectrum of stuff, you're not going to be great at everything. And like, you should be a 10x at whatever it is that you're really good at. So um, and I, I would say like leverage the, the work of what 10x developers have made. I mean, especially, you know, as, as Vin correctly pointed out, there's um, a multitude of, um, I think, excellent tooling coming out. Um, I was just talking to a friend yesterday. She, she's a VC that all she does is just look at data tools all day. Right. And it's like, it's amazing the, the, the amount of awesome stuff that's coming out right now. Um, there's an explosion of great tool sets, um, everything from what the clouds are doing all the way to, you know, just third party vendors and open source projects. And it's like this leverage the experience and, and the capabilities and the output of like 10 X developers working on these projects. Right. Um, is my advice and just focus on what you're really good at. Cause um, I mean, like, like everything in this business, right. And it's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the red queen effect, but what it means is like you, you run faster and faster just to stay in place. And this is what happens as you continually get better at stuff. It's not like you're going to give you linearly better. It's incrementally like very small improvements after your, um, you know, a novice curve. So yeah, I would say just figure out what, whatever you're good at. But I think that's kind of like general advice really, right. Like just figure your specialty and become like a hundred X of that. But, but again, like you can definitely leverage 10 X, um, you know, the, the, the products that 10 X developers are making right now, they're all awesome. So, I mean, it's a great time. And especially back to Ben's point about architecture, like um, I think being able to understand the, the patterns of being able to cobble these pieces together in a coherent fashion. I think that's more of maybe where you're going to, um, I would suggest focusing, just kind of understand the bigger picture and how everything relates. So like a good example are uh, feature stores, for example, right? Like, Suddenly in the last, like, it seems like the last month, everyone's talking about feature stores right now. Um, I'm not sure what's going on, uh, but, you know, it's just one example of like the machine learning landscape right now. And, like that's like one of like several um, just sub areas where there's just getting a lot of traction. So can you break that down for us at feature stores? Um yeah, I appreciate all that. That was great advice. From yeah, of course. Well, so feature store. So with the caveat that right now, even people who are designing feature stores haven't really come to a consensus on what exactly a feature store is. Um, so, but um, you know, it, anyone who's I think made machine learning models of production have had this problem where you need to keep track of the features you use in, in training, right? Um, and being able to serve, you know, those back, uh, you know, when you, when you have a prediction coming in, right. And so um, basically it's a way of just storing the features that you've used um, in training your models. As simple as that. So there's two versions, there's an offline version and there's an online version. Online would be for like, real time predictions and so forth. So 
some examples would be you could look at what um, there's a project called Feast that came out of Indonesia, and so that's by um, Kojek. Yeah, yes, so that's a that's one to check out. I wonder if he's actually on here right now. I saw him on here. Um, he's not on here today. Um, yeah, the, the designer of Feast was actually on on your uh, office hours a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, was, uh, he didn't have his like light on or, or camera on. I couldn't couldn't get him in. Uh, but yeah, he, he was uh, he's supposed to be joining. Tenton is an interesting one. So that came out of uh, Uber actually. Um, so that's another one to check out. Um, so they uh, that spun out of Uber's Michelangelo project back in the day. Um, so. You know, so companies are, you know, recognize this as being a central problem and are working really hard. And, and also AWS, they just came out with their own feature store too, which, you know, it's, um, it's not as advanced as uh, what Tecton has, but, you know, if it, if it works for you, then it works for you. So, so just, I think to Ben's point too, right, you're just seeing like ML architecture, it's, it's, it's becoming the real thing. I mean, Matt and I, we've, we've you know, I, I think recommend, I mean, even a couple of years ago, you wouldn't be able to, I don't think you have nearly the tool sets you have now. So it's uh, still early yeah. days though. The, the more the more I get into this data science machine learning space, it's like the more I realize, dude, I don't know shit. Uh, it grows every day. Trust me. Even the people who think they know shit um, deep down know they don't know shit. So <laughs> just keep, it's it's evolving so fast. Anyone, I would say, anyone who actually thinks they know what's going on probably actually doesn't at all. So I kind of like the idea of feature store, right? So. Kind of like the way I interpret it, and I did a post, so I'm, I'm looking for it so I can paste it here on Tecton that, that uses it. Um, it, it feels like it's a, a key to accelerate how fast somebody can deploy and not rely on memory uh, with regards to what kind of features. Uh, it gives the data scientist a way to kind of ingest new features in there and think about it as a kind of like a database that you can search for features when you have a business case uh, that you want to build a model for. Um, and also you can track of the version of the features that you've used. So it's uh, it, it, to me, it's like one of those things that are created to accelerate keeping up with business use cases that keep coming in and out so, uh, and not lose track of what you're doing. So. Yeah, for sure. And also, has, I think a lot of serious implications, for, for example, with uh, compliance like GDPR, CCPA, where you have features that you train models on, right? Like, which model did I use that feature on? And which model do I need to, um, like, maybe fix real quick so I'm not violating the law? So, you know, it's... But, I mean, these things are all super early. I mean, like I said, there's, there's a really good uh, Twimble podcast uh, on feature stores that had... a. Uh, um, I think Maxime and Willem and a few other people on there. And it, the funny thing is even they couldn't come to a consensus on what a feature store was. So yeah. these are guys building them. So you, t- you talk to somebody like uh, Srivatsan, he'll tell you he's been doing feature store for 10 years. And now we're talking about it. So I, I was, I was building a feature store back in 2012. Um, yeah, there you go. Cause like anyone who had, it's a, it's the thing where if you're building a model, like you want to know what features you use, so you can work backwards and figure out like, you know, what encodings you use and so forth. Right. And yeah. yeah. So I think anyone who's been doing this has implicitly been doing it, but it wasn't really called a feature store. It was just like getting your job done. <laughs> I think like everything else in the field. So, yeah. Kiko, you um, put some awesome text into the chat. I was wondering if you can. Yeah. Well, it, it's just, it's, it's kind of relevant because I was having like the co-founding team for my start, we were having this uh, discussion slash debate slash argument um and it it's relevant because like we're building out the infrastructure and architecture right now with like you know like limited resources and there's this question of like when is it given that like 
and, and we had some like discussions too, right? About like, how do we design a feature store? Because I think to some extent there, it's like this, it's, it's kind of this like, I don't want to say this collision of cultures, but it's this collision of a desire to, you know, get a process that is easily kind of controllable, measurable, um, that you can evaluate from the business side. But it's kind of coming at odds with the fact that like a lot of times when you're just like creating models, like for example, in like the deep learning space, or let's say, for example, anything that's computer vision based or whatever, like, you know, you're generating features on the fly a lot of times. And like, you, you want to store them between runs to just sort of understand like, okay, how am I trending? But when it comes to things, for example, like forecasting, it's I think a lot easier to store those features or classification than it is for like a deep learning model for like computer vision where you're doing like a recommendation system, like a visual rec system. Right. So it's interesting because, you know, I thought it was like a little bit premature to like, for example, when we're a startup and we're trying to build our infrastructure and launch our first models to build a feature store, especially when we could not ourselves decide, you know, things, for example, like how often do we want to be like caching features, you know, and like accessing them? Do we want it to be something that is globally available versus locally? Um, so I think it's one of these things where it's like, it's just going to be like an evolving discussion, but I think it is like the latest and greatest of the, like, how do we sort of maintain kind of creativity and flexibility in like the machine learning data science space while at the same time, you know, try to like continue to reap the ROI off of it. And it's always just this like fascinating area of how do you, how do you like measure ROI, especially when you're in data science machine learning, right? That's like an excellent question. How do we measure ROI? Um, I'd love to I'd love to hear from people after that. But uh, Greg, sorry, I cut you off, my friend. Go for it. No, no. I was going to say I like to think of it too in, in feature store. Kind of like um, anybody thought about that. Um, think about you know COVID, for example, that was introduced. Right, you you had a set of features to measure to perform some task, um, create some value, and then in, uh, introduced. Uh, COVID shows up. Uh, so how do you change your feature and keep track of that and, and, and go back to realizing where you made that change, right? So how do you introduce a new feature, whether you call it COVID or not, and then store it and, and go back? So it's kind of like, you know, it's a, it's a necessary thing to have. I, that's, that's why I kind of like it. So um, I'm, I'm happy to hear if anybody experienced that, you know, with, with feature story regards to COVID. I'd love to hear about that too. Has anybody got any insight on that or anybody deals dealt with that rather? Does not look like it. Um, I think one of these officers, it was uh, a while back. I think Tom was actually talking about it. We could like, you can include like a binary flag as a yes or no. Like, you know, was this data collected before or after COVID? And maybe that could, I don't know, help in some way, but I could also just be making stuff up. I'm known to do that. All right. So uh, so I've got Mark up next on the queue. Then after Mark, if you guys have a question, just go ahead and shoot a text right into the chat and I'll put you to the list. Um, but if we want to revisit feature stores after this, I'd be happy to because this stuff is super fascinating to me. Mark, go for it. This could potentially be related to, to feature stores in a way. Um, so maybe it falls in line. Um, also, like if someone could define feature stores, make sure I'm understanding that correctly, that'd be great. Um, but essentially kind of, a, I have a question, just like, can someone explain kind of partitioning to me um, at kind of like a high level and maybe some ways to, to think about that, to kind of give context 
um, you know, the, a lot of the data we store used to be very batch-like where, you know, a survey went out, we did some analyses, and then we had this data or a bunch of messages went out, uh, and then we collected this data. Our product's more moving towards this continuous cycle now where kind of the output of our data is like collected every single day. It's almost continuous instead of like this, this batch. So what that means is now I have in, in my data warehouse, uh, we use BigQuery because we have a lot of tables that are, are pretty easy to manage. And then we have this one table that's updated every single day for every single user. And it's just expanding and growing like crazy. And so the kind of things I've read so far is partitioning is a way to, to handle that. But I'm curious if, if uh, others have thoughts on partitioning or a better approach. Um, and BigQuery, so with the, uh, so you, walking through that, so you have a, a big table with user activity and it's updating daily. Right? Yeah, so it's essentially I created a metric that takes in all our different data and based on that, on a moving kind of window, um, it provides like a user activity score that's like uh, summarizes all our different ways they can engage with our product. And so now they get a score and a classification every single day for every single user. And so now we have this one table that's just like growing massively. And it was only launched last month. So it's not an issue right now, but I can imagine in six months, <laughs> you know, uh, we're going to be doing these SQL queries on this giant table and it's going to be reading through everything. And that's going to be a problem. Um, one, thing, one thing that you, Matt, feel free to chime in on this one. But one thing that comes to mind is in BigQuery, just uh, do a, a time partition on the table. So just uh, you can partition a table um, maybe by day, right? And so then you, when you do a query, you're only going to uh, do a select from like that day, for example. And then that, that'll shrink the footprint of your query footprint. Because you're absolutely right. If you were to like query the big scan the entire table, um, I don't know that it'd be slower per se, unless you have hotspotting, but you would definitely, I think, incur more expenses in BigQuery, right? And so by doing a, a time partition, um, you know, you'll just have it, it'll basically segment by day, that table. And then you don't have anything to worry about. I don't know, Matt, do you have anything to add on that or? No, that's, that pretty much covers it. I mean, it's funny, this is one of these like core nitty gritty data engineering details that you have to worry about no matter what column or store you're in. Like you have to figure out how to partition so you're not running these massive queries. Most of them support some kind of clustering or like integer-based partitioning as well. But that's that would be another option depending on if you have a natural way of dividing up the table, you could look at that. And then just a kind of follow-up question is, I guess I'm hearing different types of partitioning here. Like, is there any like main types of partitioning I'm guessing the date one's maybe the most most common one. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot support, like Snowflake kind of does its own partitioning with what they call micro partitions. Um, a lot of systems support like integer-based partitions. So if you can find a way to project some something that you can break things, queries down on into integers, then that's an option as well. BigQuery now allows integer-based partitions, yeah. doesn't it, Matt? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can- so that, If that's a user ID, for example, maybe do it that way. The problem you might run into is that the users may not be equally distributed. Uh, with respect to, uh, unless it's a one-to-one -one ratio with each user. The problem with that is you, you potentially might have hotspotting as a result, which means like data gets loaded into one node and then that node is like getting bonked out. So date's probably the one I would go to, I don't know. Like, and then look at clustering as well. And this, again, this is yeah. applies to a lot of different database types, but clustering is sort of like smart automated partitioning so that the database will try to identify, well, you can actually choose a handful of columns that you think will filter well into separate partitions that you might care about querying. It will attempt to, to guess how to break those apart to make your queries more efficient. Looks like Russell has a 
follow-up question here, Russell, if you want to, or a clarifying question on that end. Yeah, just had to find my mouse to, to come off mute. Um, yeah, it was just uh, about the partitioning, just um, uh, qualifying exactly what you meant by partition and whether it was like an incremental load, uh, which is um, terminology that I'm I'm used to using, and I think it is pretty much from what everyone else said, so that you segment the, the, the near-time dynamic data that you're expecting to change, but the stuff from months ago that's static and not going to change, you needn't load this all the time. And I think that's exactly what has been said. Yeah, that's basically the idea. And also that if you can like time bound your SQL query, um, if you partition by date, then the database won't try to scan all the historic data. I can just say, okay, I need to scan the last month, but I can ignore all these other partitions essentially. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a headache that arises with columnar databases. Like they're not a panacea. If you don't partition, then the database is forced to like scan everything, which is not mm -hmm. like Ideal. The other thing is with BigQuery, after 90 days, your storage price gets cut in half. So if, the, if that, that table hasn't changed, um, instead of like two cents per gig, now it's one cent per gig, which adds up if you have a lot of data. So just keep that in mind too. As long as that, that particular table hasn't changed, that partition. So, yeah. so I have a, a follow-up question for Mark. And then based on what you answer, maybe Joe or Ann or Matthew, you guys can answer. This is for my uh, understanding. So say, Mark, if you have like a, a set of columns, I, the way I understand your question or your business case is that you have a list of columns that you tailor to your users and it's incrementing, you know, it's increasing every day, like every, the column is, is, is increasing, right? Every day. So say, for example, if you need to add two more features, like two to three columns, do you plan on doing that one? And if it's a yes, Joe, Matthew, how, how do we handle that? Um, say you want to upgrade, update two to three columns after six months, you realize these additional columns are better to track, you know, what you're looking for for your customers? How do you handle all this? Uh, the, the short answer is I'm a, in the startup and the answer is yes, but we'll deal with it later. Um, and I think the way we thought about it is if we, had, if we have to add columns for the previous data, we'll just add nulls for it. Um, but I'm very curious what others have to say because I will have to face this later. Joe, Matthew. Yeah, our data expert, data engineers here. Yeah, that's a good question. So most of these systems, I mean, it's fairly easy to add columns and you can also repartition fairly easily. I mean, if you have like a petabyte table, then the repartitioning job is a big deal. But the nice thing is with, with these like very scalable columnar systems, you can just run one massive job that basically takes the table, rereads it, breaks it down into new partitions and then maps it into a new table. Um, and then you can actually just copy it back. And that's a very lightweight operation because it's just metadata that's being copied. And so that, yeah, that applies in most of these like longer and columnar database systems. Uh, it's definitely, it's, it's the kind of nitty gritty stuff that you definitely want your data engineers to understand so they can monitor performance over time and say, we should really be clustering on this other set of columns because those are the features we really care about now. And then just recluster the whole table that way. Yeah. Uh, do you plan on using BigQuery for a while? I imagine so. Yeah. Uh, and I also, I've been noticing, I've been asking a lot of data engineering questions and I'm slowly fitting into that slide or startup. <laughs> so yep. I'm like trial uh, by fire learning. <laughs> there's a really good book you should read, uh, BigQuery, The Definitive Guide. So it was actually written by like the guy who wrote BigQuery. <laughs> so um, who better to write a book about it? Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, Matt and I use it for one of the classes we teach actually, as well as just a, um, a book we just read when we go to bed because we're just 
crazy. Um, but uh, that's Is a that book. Is that the O'Reilly book? Yeah, I would highly recommend getting that. Okay, perfect. Uh, like my, all, your, my... all your questions will be answered and your world will be much better. Perfect. My, uh, yeah. my job has given me the O'Reilly access to all the books and stuff like that. So perfect reading up. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Definitely dive in and just A to Z. So it's only 600 pages. So what, what's the big deal, right? So it should take you an afternoon. <laughs> right on, man. Thank you guys so much for that. Uh, so look, if anybody gets a question, now it's time to ask, look at all these wonderful resources. I just want to do a quick shout out. I see a new face here, Kristen Davis. Welcome. Uh, shout out to Adas. What's up, Jennifer? Uh, what's up, Jacqueline? Uh, Eric, there you are, my friend. Good to see you, Koshal, Wiko, guys. How's everybody doing, man? So happy to see you guys here. I see Jay is here as well. This is awesome, guys. Um, so I don't have any questions in the queue, um, but if anybody wants to take the floor, go for it. Uh, your mirror right here? I actually, yeah. I actually yeah. had uh, one uh, sort of uh, elementary question related to the statistics part. Uh, the question is like, uh, we usually see the correlation in the data uh, and the correlation we see is basically the linear, like the data is uh, linearly correlated to each other between dependent variables of the target. But I have been off lately searching for some sort of uh, non how to check the nonlinear dependency between the data. Like, is there any statistical test or method to see the nonlinear dependencies between the dependent variables? Mutual uh, information. Like, well, I Googled a bit. I got uh, uh, some answers like we can do some regression analysis or... Uh, some uh, one type of ANOVA is there, but uh, I would like to hear from everyone. Yeah, so mutual information is probably the extension of correlation for nonlinear cases. So you can look at, at that as a possibility, but there's also a, a, a bunch of different correlation measures out there. I think Pearson's correlation is just the one that measures that extent to which two are linearly dependent, but there's also stuff like um, uh, Spearman's rank correlation. You can... You can look at chi-square to assess the independence between two variables. Um, but if you wanted to do the generalization of correlation, looking for nonlinear dependencies, I think mutual information would probably be the way to go. Um, but then again, I could be completely wrong. So if anybody has anything to add here, uh, please go ahead and jump in. Brandon, what do you think? Oh, Brandon, is he, was he paying attention? No, he's, he's back to make, mixing a drink. Yeah, sorry, I, I'm in the middle of work, California time. Yeah, no um, this is the type of thing that I have to look up and uh, review a little bit. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head. I saw some in the past, but I forgot the name, so I got to go and look it up. Vin or Mikiko, what do you guys think? Is there did so? So I mentioned mutual information. Chi squared is is another one, um, and Spearman's rank correlation. But that's specifically when you're trying to rank things. What else is there to to measure the extent? of correlation when there's, you know, not necessarily a linear relationship. Fun fact, statistics is my weakest area. So I'm going to throw this one to Vin. Rupert's thinking I'm going to talk over a statistics guy. No, <laughs> of course you've nailed it. <laughs> Come on. What was that? I might be wrong. No, you're not. <laughs> it's possible. So that, was, that was amazingly humble. That was very, very nicely done. Oh, you, you picked up everything from there. I mean, yeah, you could probably rattle off a couple of more me measures, but at this point, you got to look at the data a little bit more to figure out if, you know, you're stepping out a little bit too far over it. That's one of the biggest things about data is once you start talking about correlation and you start talking about actually building models that are more functional and that are 
explainable. You need to look at what's actually happening. And so I need to see the data. I need to see, you know, the problem space. And, you know, I could I could make a few things up, but this is kind of one of the dangerous things about data science is we'll start throwing out different approaches, but we don't really understand your problem very well. And we could send you down a two-week rabbit hole just by accident. So there's definitely more, but don't get too far forward without understanding what you've already done and understanding especially your data. How much does your data really support your conclusions before you get too far out trying to prove something that maybe you need to do a little bit more data gathering, a little bit more investigation before you get to, that would be the only thing I could add. Excellent. Excellent point. Yeah. I think um, that's, that's a good point. Cause I, I, I do feel like sometimes I rattle off advice without really understanding the context of the problem. And that happens a lot. Um, but yeah, it's good to get context of the problem. And I just posted a link here right now, uh, just talking about a bunch of different correlation measures in Python. So Spearman, Kendall, um, I think those are the only ones this one mentions, but uh, there are so many, so many different correlation measures. Did you have a kind of a um, specific example, Kushal, that you wanted to um, to, to discuss? Uh, and just for record tour, I got you in line. You'll go after... Uh, no, like I just don't have like some particular sort of example in the data, but uh, it is like I have been doing Kaggle, like I was just searching for some data set. So it was, uh, you can see that data like a uh, normalized form uh, between uh, minus three to three, like all, all the, well, all the different dependent variables are in between those ranges. So I was thinking of that, uh, like I got that question uh, in the search that, how can we check the non-linear dependence? Because uh, although I don't know like non-linear, how much important is non-linear dependence as compared to linear one, but uh, I see the potential, like it could be the uh, good thing if we can check uh, in any way non-linear dependence in the data. And I I, I actually totally relate with that uh, Spearsman coefficient I got about it, but I don't know about chi-square. Tom, Tom, are you still here? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I just I wanted to point something out. Just this is a philosophical level, and by the way, I always want people to be comfortable uh, disagreeing with me because this I think this is correct, but it's it's a little out there. So consider efficiency. We we almost always express that as a ratio, and it's usually what we get out versus over what we put in, and it's not a lot different for most of our metrics. And the reason I'm bringing this up, we want to just be creative sometimes with a new metric that says, you know, I'm looking for accuracy of what I just did compared to accuracy of some kind of worst case, like I only took the average. Um, and quite embarrassingly, there, there is a measure we use for that. I think it's F2, but I always forget. I never try to memorize these things. And then look at the other way we do things, like with a confusion matrix. We'll just tabularly comparing, you know, what we want to get versus what we don't want to get. And so I think um, I could imagine if Danny were here, he'd say, hey, remember to be creative. Remember to be inquisitive. Just just a philosophical thought there. I love it. I love it, Tom. Thank you. Uh, so, Koshal, hopefully that answered the question. So you yeah. got a few things you can look into. Uh, so mutual, mutual information, that's kind of the, you know, the generalization of regular co- correlation um, yeah, yeah. chi-squared testing dependence between 
two variables uh, and then the different like there's like 12 different correlation measures and i think if you look into i think it's both scipy and stats models have a bunch of different implementations of the various correlations so definitely look into those um so next up we got uh wiko then after wiko we'll go to uh tor so tor i'll go ahead and load your hand uh, shout out to albert bellamy i see he's in the house but I did not see him because his camera's off. Um, Wiko, are you still here? Yeah, yeah. So um, I kind of held back my question um, from asking it earlier uh, whenever we first started uh, for two reasons. One, because it revolves around web scraping. I know it's kind of iffy a little bit. On, well, only, on if this, you wanna, uh, only if you want to scrape the personal user information of everybody on the internet. Yeah, uh, no. Other than that, that's fine. Not at all. Okay, cool. And the second reason was because... Um, I am kind of in like the initial phases of this this endeavor of this project. Um, essentially, what uh, a, a big part of what I'm doing for work is um, creating and maintaining and, and managing um, a couple dozen scrapers for uh, product information around appliances for a company. We grab stuff like prices, pictures, reviews, all kinds of stuff. Right. The current system, how we have it is wildly inefficient, not reliable, so on and so forth, um, primarily because it's all running on various local machines. What I want to do is start very, very small, like baby steps, right? I want to take one scraper. Uh, we use a couple different packages uh, like Selenium and Scrapey and things like that. I want to take a Selenium script, toss it up into like a Lambda function on AWS and just just get that to run. I'll worry about kicking out the output and connecting that to the database afterwards. But I feel like it should be pretty simple. I am currently at the step of where I'm just like Googling mad shit, right? So I got like five or six Medium articles up and like one or two YouTube videos in the queue. You know what I mean? But I figured I was here and um, I'd, I'd push the question out and see if y'all had any uh, better resources for me to look up. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, open this up to let's see if anybody has experience. Vin, do you have any experience scraping the web? Um, but also, we go. I can um, in, in the Slack channel make sure to um, hook you up with a book. I think it's like web scraping for Python. Um, I'll drop that into the resource section there in the Slack channel. Uh, Vin, you know it's funny what you just described sounds like every web scraping project I've ever seen. No company really wants to have that out on a service that they own and have to own up to because there's so much danger in web scraping, but you're in one of those golden areas where you're okay doing things. And I, I think so, I'm yeah. guessing, yeah, you're in one of the strange, okay areas where you're scraping pricing off of other sites and scraping the images are problematic. As long as you have rights to them, you know, that may be an area that you need to worry about a little bit because the images themselves may be protected if they are images that aren't publicly provided to your company. I'm guessing you're probably okay with some, but there may be some proprietary images or protected images there that you may not be okay scraping. When it comes to reviews, you're usually okay pulling reviews off of sites unless they have something specifically in, um, they're robots. Sometimes it's in their privacy. There's different sites will have like 
these things hidden somewhere that say, hey, don't scrape. And as soon as that comes up, then you're in a problematic space. Pricing, like I said, that's one of those places where it's a, you're okay. You can scrape prices from anyone um, as long as you're not doing anything invasive when it comes to scraping. I mean, it's almost the same thing as going onto their site and looking at their price. And so you're cool with that. But the problem you're going to have deploying, and the reason why, like I said, a lot of the companies that have worked with that do scraping have it running on somebody's laptop or four different boxes, you know, that are all developer owned is because as soon as you say, we're going to put something that's a scraper into production, now they own it. And there's not that level of, it's not a scraper anymore. It's something we own and we're doing this intentionally instead of it's happening accidentally. So from a technology standpoint, you probably on those boxes already have all the technology you need. You just need to deploy it and scale it. Your problem is going to be if you run it, if you run it in production, now you're accountable for it. And so before you take another step forward, you need to make sure with compliance that you're not getting into any issues. Like I said, around images is probably going to be your biggest one. Make sure that you're not pulling any images that are protected in some way, shape or form. And also respect those sites. When it comes to pulling reviews, respect the site's robots and respect the site's uh, privacy policy and use policy. And so I would actually start there instead of starting with the technology. So yeah. are you stuck know. on the technology part or are you stuck with the, the scraping part? Um, I can at at this point, and unless anything blows up, right? I can get essentially everything I need from the various sites. So the scraping part is is good and on point for now. What I'm trying to do is take these scripts or at j just one, right, and and deploy it and schedule it there versus on like a little dusty laptop. You know. um, Lambda, uh, it's using Selenium, right? What language I'm is using scrapers built with Selenium and Scrapey. Um, is Scrapey, what language is it in? Uh, both Python. Python. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think you, you should be fine. I mean, assuming all the stuff that Vin talked about and you're, you're kosher on that part, um, and we'll assume that you're good to go and legal is signed off on this and everything. I think then it's a question of, okay, so how do I deploy what I've done here in Lambda? Is that kind of where you're stuck now? Yes. So there's a couple ways you could do this. I mean, walk me through this. Like, where are you getting stuck in Lambda right now? I mean, I don't want to like uh, yeah. you dive into it. We can call me if you have a question, but, uh, is it like deploying it to Lambda or have you, have you used Lambda before? Zero. zero? Strong zero. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, and that's, that's um, uh, I mentioned one of the reasons why I kind of like withheld the question from, from bringing it up at first is because yeah. um, I'm in that kind of discovery phase when I'm just looking up a whole bunch of resources and all that. So yeah, um, I haven't I even jumped into it quite yet. The advice I'd have for Lambda getting started out is actually go through probably the getting started. I think they have a really good job just kind of working through the workflow and how to think about Lambda. It's really different than running it on a local machine um, just because of the, some of the limitations you have and just the workflow is different. But I think once you get used to Lambda, like you're going to like it. And the cool thing is now you can run Docker in Lambda. So like, that you was... know, there's that as well. That was, that was oh. a big thing because um, I also have a strong zero uh, experience okay. with Docker, too. <laughs> so, um, zero and two now. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I would say just start with, so I, would do, I would take the time and actually dig into the uh, Lambda's docs and just learn like how AWS wants you to do things in Lambda. Because I, 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 Matt and I always find when people are learning new technologies, and I guess it's kind of the way anything is, but like go through 
I, I'm just a fan of like um, read the effing docs. It, it saves yeah. you a lot of time because then you figure out how to do it like the way that AWS wants you to do it. Lambda can be finicky if you're not, if you try and like have an opinion about how you should do stuff in Lambda, good luck. Um, so like I would say just take the time, take an hour or two and just go through the docs and just learn it. And then if you, if you know Docker or if you don't, then that'd be the next step. But you could probably just deploy it. Like what you want is a requirements file in Python that has Scrapey and whatever dependencies you have, right? And then your code just references it. You're going to have to zip it up. You're going to have to make a zip file with the code and the dependencies and then upload that into Lambda. Okay. Right. Cool. That, that sounds familiar. I got to that paragraph in one of the Medium articles I got to. So awesome. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Sweet. I follow up with a, with a less technical um, question to this. Uh, so it's it's not on how to achieve the, the web scraping, but uh, the legal repercussions or the ethical repercussions of doing it, uh, being that GDPR and other data protection regulations differ globally. Um, what should take precedent? Should it be uh, the location of the entity that is present on the web that you scrape the data or the location of the server that hosts the data or the location of the person scraping the data? It's a really complicated mesh of... Um, data privacy regulations and how can the, the scraping function that you build understand fully the complexities of that so that it doesn't put you in hot water. Yeah, this is that, that gray area where uh, I forgot who it was that was coming in before a couple of times was asking about scraping users' information from the web. And I was like, uh, I don't know if I want to talk about that. Um, I think but, it was like for fun too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. just just because, you know. Yeah. I mean, but in this case, I don't know, does, does GDPR play a role like i think vin was talking about it um that you know for just scraping prices it's publicly available we can like just go up to the website and look at the price and that's say okay so i don't think there's any type of ethical issue in in that case well i think that i'm not sure what the ramifications are for you but the, the ruling that came out a few months ago about linkedin right and scraping on linkedin i think that kind of changed I, I don't a lot know of the uh, legal considerations on scraping so because the thesis was that uh linkedin um, wouldn't allow people to scrape its site. And well, I think the ruling changed that. So hey, real quick, Glico, um, I love that you're doing this, um, but are you using Python? Yes. Okay. And are you using mostly like just the request library and the, and the uh, beautiful soup and all of that? Um, I'm using Selenium to, to get it all and scraping. Oh, uh, yeah. No beautiful soup. So just what I've ran into, so I've used the Pi Selenium only when I couldn't get around just the basic request library methods, because as you've probably seen, Pi Selenium is just so painfully slow and you can really go to town. So I was going to, I was hoping you had tried something like, okay, I'm going to use requests and beautiful soup. And then when that fails, I'll roll over to use Pi Selenium. And the only reason I'm suggesting this is not because Pi Selenium won't work. It's just because doing this fallover method will go probably at least an order of magnitude faster or more. Just thinking out loud here. No, um, absolutely. We would end up use, um, using Scrapey uh, for that because we, can, we found that it was, it was a lot easier to scale, go a lot faster. Um, for sure, but we end up running into several um, websites, uh, retailers' websites that tend to be very, very heavy um, uh, JavaScript rendered, and then that's exactly. running into those issues. Uh, so right. that's why we pull up Selenium, and yeah, it takes a while, but I, I yeah, yeah I feel it. your pain, totally yeah. feel your pain. So, but it, 
that's what I kind of learned uh, when I needed to plot. Uh, mine's more like technical data sheet scraping stuff. But if I can, if oh, it's just what I said, basically, if, if you have a way to roll over, um, it, it's going to fail really quick, by the way, with the request library, if you hit those things. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, just a thought. Yeah, and um, to the, the legal concerns that, that everybody's brought up, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a legal professional, right? Um, but as, as far as I'm aware from what I've been told, we have essentially clearance um, from the client and they kind of like, yeah, if, if it's like okay or not okay, it'll be on us. And it's like kind of written into that contract. So, oh yeah, if it's a client telling you to do it, no, you're you are completely in the green. Yeah, it is the yeah. client that's going to end up being the one who runs it and hosts it, and right. you know the get out of jail free card that you just gave. Basically, everything I've said is gone, so you're Sweet. good. But they, <laughs> yeah, if you've already crossed that bridge, don't worry about it. And cool. yeah, as far as deploying it, I'll be honest, I don't know. You know, if this is going to be a learning project for you for for Lambda and AWS in general and Selenium and, you know, maybe even into Docker, there's a lot to learn and a lot of trouble you can get yourself into, which is probably what you're asking us to, you know, where are you going to get into trouble? And I don't know. That's yeah. that's going to be the biggest problem. And I think the reason why you're getting generic advice and the reason why I went legal first is because from a technical standpoint, you've already got, if it's running on a box, it'll run on Amazon pretty well. You just have to go through, you know, Joe's saying basically go through the tutorials and it's, it's fairly easy to get it up and running. But the problem is there's always a little gotcha someplace. And unless we know, Absolutely. you know, that's the advice that you really need. And none of us know enough to tell you where the gotcha is going to be. So that's, you know, we should be telling you more useful information, but I can't guess where all the gotchas are going to be. Yeah. So we really have to start you at square one, which is kind of frustrating, but it is no, what it is. That's perfect. And again, like I kind of hesitated at first because that's essentially where I'm at. So yeah, with that being said, I appreciate all the all the feedback already. And I'll probably come in here next week with a, a nice little list of gotchas. So I mean, it might be an interesting uh, article for you to write if you figure this out. Yeah, well, we'll just use a different name, like you know, but <laughs> yeah, it'll be it'll be fun for sure. We'll see, we'll see what happens, y'all. Good, great question, man. Great discussion. Thank you very much, Wico. Um, next up, we got Tor. Tor, are you still in the building? Yep, still here. <laughs> it's right. quite interesting to listen in on all of this. Yep. Um, I just want to spin back a couple of steps um, because you know when people are talking about running their algorithms and their regressions and etc. This is all fine, but I, it seems to me that whenever somebody comes up and starts talking about, okay, how do I do this instead or an alternative methods like was mentioned, the correlation issue, et cetera, then the answer often is, or the answer that I hear is that um, you have to do a manual or an evaluation or go and analyze the data in more detail to find more information. Now, what is entailed in that process? Is it a manual process? Do you look at a section of data? How do you source it? Do you have tools to do it? How do you do that? Yeah, the more and more I get into data science, the more and more I, you know, I've been doing this mentoring thing for like two years, the more and more I find myself having my first response always being, uh, it depends. And what does it depend on? 
the context of what it is that you're trying to do. So I think like anytime, like, you know, the, the, the multiple days a week that I do this for a day science dream job, it's usually more of a deep dive, like more of a context about what it is that they're trying to achieve, what it is they're trying to accomplish with this data set. And then thinking about it from the ground up um, rather than just like dishing out advice from up top and hoping that it trickles down to something useful. I don't know if that really answered your question, but I'd love to hear from, from other people um, on this as well. Mikiko, I know you've got a lot of expertise and experience in this mentoring game as well. Being one of my Sorry, colleagues. can we repeat the question? I was a bad student. Oh my God. I was busy cracking jokes in the chat. Tor, Tor is pretty much asking when somebody, Tor, and definitely uh, get, get, get me correct if I'm misstating your question, but he's asking when somebody's coming to you for advice, such as, you know, uh, Koshal was when he was talking about what type of correlation methods do we use? How is it that you determine which path to go down to see what works and what doesn't work? Tor, did I get that right? If not, please restate your question. Okay. Basically, what I'm looking for is just that there are situations, okay, you, you have this data, you have an idea, you have testing, and you, you run your test. But what I'm trying to, uh, to get at is very often the answer I've heard in these meetings is that you go in and you um, to understand the data better. That's what the, you need to understand your data better. Okay, what does, what's entailed in that process? Do you go in and look at the tables, the data itself? Do you do simple testing? What exactly is that process? Is involved in that process? Yeah, okay. So the, okay, so the way I approach projects um, at work, right? Because so when they say understand the, the data, um, so, you know, there's a couple different frameworks. Um, Mark posted about CRISPDM, that's one. Um, but at a very high level, you want to understand a couple of things. One, uh, the literal structure or structure of the data or the data sets that you're using. Uh, so, for example, is it tabular? Is it image? Is it, you know, is it uh, unstructured data? Um, what are the sizes? Uh, what are the, like, different, like, records or lines? You know, what tables do they sit in? There's a literal just kind of, like, you sit in front of you and then what is the actual like structure of it, right? And that's kind of easy stuff that you can do with different packages. Um, then the second part though, is understanding um, what is being captured, right? So I, so hopefully with most like relational databases, for example, you know, the tables are representing objects or relationships or entities or, or whatever, right? Um, but like, say for example, I'll, I'll use real estate just because that's what I've been living in, right? Um, let's say, for example, we have two tables. Uh, one of them is measuring deeds and one of them is measuring mortgages, right? So a good thing to understand is like, what do those actually mean? Like, uh, not just how does the company define them, but what, what are they supposed to actually represent, right? So you've understood the structure of your data. You're understanding the sort of objects, what's being captured. The third part that I do think people kind of like miss out on though is the is like what was the implementation? What was the definition at the time that data was created? So for example, uh, you just have something that's like interest rates. Okay, well, is it like interest rates uh, at the time that the mortgage was taken out? Is it the most updated interest rate? Um, you have to kind of understand like what does that mean? Now, if you're lucky, the data engineers would have coded that into comments or annotations, like if you're lucky, um, most of the time you're not lucky. And, you know, they might've put the documentation there, 
but you know, and so sometimes that involves a lot of backtracking, a lot of talking to either people who were there when it happened, which they probably aren't, um, or people for whom that tribal knowledge has been passed down, right? So, okay, so we covered the structure of the data, we covered, um, you know, where the objects or entities that are being measured, the relationships, we covered how are things being defined. Um, and then I would say at that point, you need to understand like, how does the data relate to the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, like it's very, like something that I, on the one hand, you want to use whatever data you have that's available and it needs to be appropriate. But on the other hand, you could be attributing things in your project just because the data is there when maybe there are other like factors that were influencing um, the thing that you're trying to measure or predict that are in fact not being captured. So instead of kind of constricting your analysis to the data that is available, it's first saying, what is the problem that you're trying to measure or understand? Um, then sort of brainstorming all the things that you would sort of need to answer it. And then you come back to reality and go, okay, what do we actually have? When you can start first from the like, what do we need versus what do we have? That then allows you to identify first off, like what is the gap, right? Can you put it on the roadmap? Um, can you sort of uh, negotiate you know, for it with the data or the engineering teams. Um, but then it also allows you to understand what are the things that your data, your current data is not capturing and which could impact your analysis or your prediction of your model, right? So that's how I sort of understand, like when people say, you know, you need to go back and understand the data, a lot of times it's short, it's like a shortcut for saying they disagree with you, number one. Uh, it can be a shortcut for, you know, saying that they don't think you understand the problem. Um, and, and maybe you do or you don't, it could be a matter of like re sort of communicating the sort of the output or your analysis, but other, other times it could be that they're saying, you know, we have this like tribal knowledge of how, you know, for example, we know that these campaigns were not being like web hooked back in like 2014 to 2018. So we know that it wasn't capturing some of this data. Um, so if you're saying that like, you know, there's certain changes that you're measuring now versus then, um, we know you can't be measuring those because you know whatever, right? Like you have this tribal knowledge that sometimes people are sort of referring to and they're just not bringing it up. So sometimes you have to go back and you have to like check your assumptions and what you understand about like what you were like measuring and, and working with. Um, but, that, but that's how I would approach it. At one of the companies I was at, we, and it, I'm sure it's not any different from any other company, but we had this issue where, <laughs> where they had done things, they had acquired companies. Um, so even tables that were, you could have literally like very looking, similar looking tables, and yet they were, the metrics were being defined very, very differently, even though they had the same name, like annual contract value, like should be a very simple metric. And yet, you know, some places they include services fees, other places they don't we had acquired companies where they had different ways of like measuring annual contract value, but you need to go and you need to like look at the documentation. You need to talk to people to pick up those nuances, but those nuances can impact your analysis. So I hope that was helpful. Extremely helpful. Uh, it's given me definitely uh, one of the challenges I'm working on right now. Well, not a challenge as such, but I'm in the process of developing a, online concept, uh, like a software solution for my industry. And I've mapped the entire process from A to Z. And of course, I don't know everything. I'm good at what I'm doing, but I don't know everything. And part of my problem now, or one of my key factors in this project, in the full complete set of tools that are gonna be integrated 
data that's going to be evaluated. Um, there will be uh, forecasting based on historical data, present data. So there's a whole bunch of things that I'm trying to get a grasp on. Um, and my biggest concern in my project is that I'm kind of building myself into different tunnels and not kind of uh, making sure that I have the freedom in the future when the problems really start coming. It's easy to set up the databases now, but the tools have been set up. They're working. Data is being collected. I'm not using the data for anything yet, but still I need to. I know that they're going to be very relevant in every stage of the tools that's going to be developed, the reports, the outputs, the graphs, the analysis, everything in one step after the other. So for me, this is why I'm joining this group as well, is to get a better understanding because clearly, manually, it's impossible to manage the number of data that I'm generating. Um, I have 30 people signed up right now, um, just running one of the tools. Um, I'm collecting 20, 30 reports or a time-based reports based on where they are in the stage. So the data already now is growing immensely. And um, my biggest concern is that I'm just going to get to a point where I, okay, with my Excel, I can manage still, <laughs> which is my tool. But I also, of course, need to have a better understanding of the tools that are out there and, and how to manage the process, because that's going to be key. Um, it will fail if I can't. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think documentation, um, <laughs> documentation is a big problem. I know that's like the understatement of the century, right? Uh, <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, so when it comes to data. But um, I would say, uh, first off, like, uh, I don't want to say don't worry. I would say definitely keep it top of mind um, and always like figure it, like always think about it definitely from the process, from the perspective of, how can I um, proceduralize like uh, this, like knowledge gathering, this um, this documenting of assumptions and all that? Because it's definitely something like if you're doing it manually, it's 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 going to be really hard. Um, I would also, you know, definitely uh, look around for use cases. I, I remember there was a talk um, that from Lyft where they had tried to come up with some kind of like meta, like not a feature store, but it was a meta data dictionary store. You know, and they had come up with some like internal toolings for it. Um, but I would say like the nice thing is that that's, it's a problem that a lot of people have. Um, a lot of companies have figured out sort of different method methodologies for how to address it. Um, so I would definitely look up, look up like use cases because um, you'll, you'll find stuff out there. I think it is a hard thing, you know, um, but definitely what I would say is that what you don't want is, is tribalizing knowledge. Like you want to just keep as far away from that as possible try to find ways that uh, work for you in terms of document process. And like any process, you know, um, it should be something that is like easy to use. It should be easy for you to do the right thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I would just kind of keep that in mind for sure. Thanks. Great question. There's some great, great, I love this. I love this great dialogue. I want to hear from, uh, let's hear from Vin, then Tom, and then Mark on this point, because uh, it's an excellent question, Tor, and like I'm sure as hell I'm learning a lot from this discussion. Uh, then after we hear from those three, let's go to Sheridan for his question, then we'll call it a evening. It was funny, Harpreet said, hey, can you jump in on this? And I said, oh, yeah, no problem. And then I'm listening to Mikiko and I'm going, what's left? <laughs> you kind of nailed it. <laughs> literally covered almost everything. The only thing I would add, and this is 
you know, it's a bit extension of your question, but it's, it's someplace that you're going to end up here pretty quickly is, you know, you hear this ground truth buzzword, but early on in the process, figure out what, what ground truth means. What is, you know, what is it that you're trying to predicting you're trying to predict in reality, like tie it to something that's real, tie it to something that you can look at and measure and say, this is actually happening. This isn't just some phenomenon that I'm looking at in my data set, tie it to something that's happening in reality, some sort of business outcome, try to understand what it is that you're modeling. Is it a system? Is it a business process? Is it a, you know, in a pricing model, it's, it seems like, well, what I'm doing is modeling price, but you're really not. You're modeling how many people will buy at this price, or you could be modeling how this product impacts another product's sales and pricing one product could impact another product. And so ground truth can get lost. This idea of what are we trying to model and what are we actually, what questions are we trying to answer can get lost very, very easily if you don't have a way of tying it to a real world example, real world system or mapping your outcomes and predictions back to something that the business cares about. And so I would say, you know, that, that buzzword of ground truth, get that established early and understand what it is that you're actually trying to model and what the business really wants from this. Because in some cases, the business lies to you the first two times you ask that question. And it's until you have, gone through the data, come up with an initial model and then said, Hey, this does this. And it's that presentation where you say, right. And the business is, well, yeah, but, and you know, like the pricing example, it may not specifically be, they care about what the price is. What they really care about is how many people are buying, or they really care about increasing the sales of a complimentary item or entering into a particular marketplace. And all of a sudden you start getting a, Oh, okay. So the price is just a proxy for something else that you actually want to do. So even when you're exploring your data, you begin to ask those questions about, okay, what is this data describing? in the real world? What is this that the business cares about in the real world? Because you may find, you know, a lot of Makiko's points are way more applicable in the context of a business that may have given you the, the requirements halfway at first, and then they're going to redefine requirements and maybe move a little bit of what you're doing into a, something that reframes your problem space. Mic drops, man. I love this stuff. This is great. Tom and then Mark. Um, it'd be better if Mark went before me on this one. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Mark. Uh, perfect. I mean, <clears throat> both them and Makiko, that was just amazing points. And something I really, really liked was the the comment on like understanding your assumptions and the weird nuances of what's happening with your data. And so that really reminded me kind of like, and when I was in grad school, I took a month long break to this kind of entrepreneurship and innovation program. And from that, it gave me this emphasis on customer focus of like, if you want to solve problems and add value, you have to understand what your customer wants. And since then, you know, when I go into a job, my first few weeks, I'm spending all my time. And this is more so to give you strategies of like, how do you get that information, those nuances? I talk to customer success. I talk to sales. I talk to UX research. Anyone who's talking to a user or customer, I want them to be my best friend because I'm going to be talking to them saying like, what does the user want? Or like, hey, I'm getting this data is this matching kind of your customer's experience that they're describing to you? What's the disconnect? So talk to those people and having weekly coffee talks um, and building that report is really useful. For your use case, it sounds like you're working on your own business idea as your own startup. And so another kind of takeaway was from this program was like, if you're doing a startup and you're trying to innovate, 
one of the first things you need to do is to have like a hundred user interviews. That's kind of like the stereotypical thing that they say for that. And um, a, a one framework that they use is called design thinking. And uh, the first step of design thinking is empathizing with your user. And so you want to deeply understand what are the nuances of kind of your user and their data use cases for that. And the way this works, I've, I've worked on trying to start my own startup and, and failed <laughs> a few times. But the last go at it, we, we got pretty far ahead of MVP and was starting to get some traction before we stopped. Um, we would build out our stuff for MVP and then we go on LinkedIn and find 10 people who we thought were a customer and show them what we built and ask them what their experience was and then go back and reiterate and repeat that process. Or we would even cold call this for pharmacy tech. We will cold call pharmacies and just ask like, hey, this is our idea. This is the problem we're trying to solve, but the data, this is the type of data you have. Does this align with your experiences? And doing that over and over again, one, helps you get those unique nuances, but two, it builds up this competitive advantage because your competitors aren't gonna have the same conversations as you. So you're gonna have that unique perspective. And um, so like, I think the main takeaway is like getting that customer focus is really helpful. And I, I have a credit to kind of being my superpower in data science and uh, driving business value. That's, that's uh, been awesome, man. A, a, a question on that though, like how, how can we start gaining customer perspective? Let's say our customers are internal people that are gonna be using our data product. Um, you know, that's always the issue, I think, with, with data scientists is they don't, they, they get they get so wrapped up in like their models and the data sets and, and the numbers and all that stuff that they don't take the time to step back. And by they, I mean, sometimes it happens to me too, to, to connect what it is they're doing to the real world. So how can we start initiating some of those conversations? Yeah, one, oh, someone else has talked, but um, one of the things I do that's really useful is I get a ticket on Jira saying like, hey, we want this analysis or we want to start building this feature product before I even start even digging in the data. Because um, I've been doing it, I can kind of mentally imagine the joins in my head in a way. I go to Excel or Google Sheets and make a table shell of fake data with all the columns I think they want and the rows. And then I take a screenshot and post it on the Jira ticket and to the business stakeholder and say, hey, this is what I think the end deliverable is for you does this align or maybe it's like a classification metric i'll just like google paint <laughs> uh, or like some paint of like a chart and i'll share that with them um and say like is this what you need is this what you mean and kind of what Ben was talking about when you show them first they'd be like oh actually that's not what we were talking about all this is what we really want and so it works really well for internal stakeholders and it's really like hyperdrive my my requests where like i don't I guess like my first data science job, I didn't do this step and I went down two week rabbit holes. And then for the last three days, I was scrambling to fix things. And so I've been burned enough times to show them the quick MVP really first. Again, that kind of aligns with design thinking as well as like iterating and, and, and doing an MVP real fast. Oh, I love that. Thank you very much. Tori, did that answer your question? Or it, it answers, just as a follow-up comment, the product I'm working on, I've been working in the audit industry, financial auditing for last 15 years in oil and gas, one of the tools that I've launched and now created uh, with all the manual adjustments, technically over those years, I've developed a lot of tools to make my own workday easier and also for other auditors. And one of the tools that I launched, uh, previously when people ask you how many resources you need for an audit and uh, for how many weeks, 
based on a few parameters. These few parameters are linked up to country, uh, who you're going to audit, etc. that impact on these analysis. And that's in the future data that will be collected and replacing. And originally, it would take me only a couple of hours to kind of generate a small report. Now I use my own tool, which I developed, and it takes me exactly two seconds and I have the answer or an estimate or a basis for discussion with the client or partners or whatever. So, so that's the background for where I'm coming from. But I certainly agree with you, Mark, about the testing and getting the, the, um, the user's perspective. Uh, if they don't know they need it, you have to tell them they do. Uh, and the only way you can do that is by showing them that wow, you can now do this in two minutes instead of spending two hours. Um, so that's my philosophy, and I completely agree with you, and I really appreciate the input from everybody. It's been very, very good. Oh, man, I'm glad, glad you enjoyed that. I'd certainly enjoy that as well. I'll be running that one back a few times. Tom, did you want to add anything here? Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that it's, it's at the end of the show. First thing, I'm thinking of changing where it says Thomas Ives in my thing to what Makiko says. Makiko, I love your brain, girl. I really do. Now, the next thing is more of a, uh, a group activity. Could y'all hold your hands like this together with me real quick? Harpreet, you're doing such an amazing job on all of this. And I, I got to say this. No, really, take it seriously here. Um, by the way, Zoom meeting chat sucks. I'm not going to use it anymore. I refuse to use it. But Harpreet, I'm begging you. There's so much good stuff shared in your community meetings, would you please form a Slack work group for happy hours or really all that you do? And then you can have some channels in the work group for happy hours, during happy hours discussion, happy hours tech talk. Because like people were saying, there's great links being shared. I can't keep track of them all. And, and if I could keep track of all the genius comments in a Slack work group, it would be so much better. Yeah, so thank you. There is. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, there is actually a Slack channel. Um, I can't remember what the URL is, but if you go to the artist of data, the artist of data science.fireside.fm, on the top banner, there's a link to get to the Slack community. Um, so just click on that, and um, you guys could could join in. Yeah, do do have a Slack community? Share a bunch of resources on there. People are quite active on there. I wonder if I can just copy and paste the URL into I, here. Yeah, I hope so. What I'm kind of asking, begging everyone, could we refuse to use the Zoom chat. The Zoom chat does go it goes quick. Chat. It does go yeah. very, very quick. Um, and there's no uh, way to react uh, to people's comments efficiently either. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree. Uh, yeah, I'll, so everybody, if you're listening at home, watch on YouTube, go to the artist of data science.fireside.fm because um, my website is trash right now. So if anybody's listening and wants to help me build my website up, please, I beg you, I need your help. Uh, but there's a, a button up top that says join the slack community and for those of you who are not in there yet let me paste that here and that should get you right there into the slack community um Ashridan, you you had a question in the chat i'm not sure if that um if that was answered if you if you want to ask it go for it if if, oh, if not no worries um yeah thank you it was answered actually yeah i appreciate everyone this okay. is really Lovely. Definitely right on, man. Uh, well, guys, if you haven't already, make sure you check out the episode with this man right here, 
Greg Coquillo, Coquillo, sorry. We had the uh, the interview released today. It's, man, we recorded months ago. Thank you so much, Greg, for taking time out of your schedule to, to be on the show and then talk all prod, product management with me. I uh, learned so much in that episode. I know you guys will as well. So thank you for, for being there. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, guys, and shout out to the Mars rover Perseverance. That guy landed safely. About to, we're about to find some ancient signs of life on Mars, I hope. Uh, but uh, same time next week, guys. If you haven't already, though, make sure you sign up for the Sunday Office Hours, 11 a.m. CST. Uh, host that with my good friends at Comet ML, uh, who've been generous enough to sponsor these Sunday sessions. Um, they're not as busy as these ones, which is probably a good thing if you want to get your questions in and have more intimate experience. Uh, you can register by going to bit.ly forward slash comet dash ml dash oh. And I hope to see you guys there. Guys, thank you so much for spending your Friday evening with me. Really appreciate having all of you here and you know sharing everything that you guys have have shared all this knowledge and wisdom, man. I really, really appreciate it. Remember y'all got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone.